You're listening to a podcast from Heart. Hello, I'm Dr. Alistair Lindsay, and welcome to this edition of the Heart Podcast. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a topic we haven't previously covered, which is transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVI. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of the first TAVI procedure, and it's now estimated that over 50,000 valves have been implanted in this way worldwide. Nonetheless, it remains relatively early days for the procedure, which continues to evolve rapidly. Further insights are coming from research all the time, and it's a paper that gives us new insights into how the ventricle responds following TAVI that we'll be discussing today. The paper comes from the group of Dr. Philip McCarthy at King's College London, one of the early adopters of this technique. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, good morning. Thank you very much for asking me. Not at all. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we were, were delighted to receive your paper and publish it in Heart, partly because it, it's looking at quite a novel aspect of the TAVI technique, and something uh, I have to say that I, I wasn't quite so fair was, and, and you looked at what, how the ventricle responds to percutaneous aortic valve replacement. Um, could you tell us just a little bit about the, the background to the study, how the idea came up, and um, how you formulated the hypothesis? Because I understand there are some precedents from surgical work in aortic valve replacement here. Well, that's right. We did our first aortic valve implantation back in August 2007. Uh, and I was very curious uh, at the way that these patients behaved immediately postoperatively because they didn't behave like patients that we were used to. I think the reason for this is that interventional cardiologists aren't usually used to dealing with the first 24 or 48 hours uh, of care in patients who've had a surgical aortic valve replacement. But perhaps secondly, patients with surgical aortic valve replacements have the big confounding issues of not only a large wound and therefore a large inflammatory response, but also cardiopulmonary bypass. So it struck me that TAVI and the implantation of the valve uh, under just local anaesthetic with no bypass was a fairly new and unique scenario whereby you could remove chronic pressure overloads to the ventricle without a lot of the confounders that we were used to. Now, if you refer to the surgical literature, and those uh, listeners who are familiar with the surgical literature will know that it's rather confused as to exactly what happens to the ventricle when you remove a chronic obstruction. In other words, you remove this stenotic aortic valve. Uh, and, and I think the reason that the literature is slightly confused as to what happens is because of these confounding issues. It's actually a very difficult thing to study. So it seemed to me that TAVI was actually rather nice. It was quite a nice model uh, of, of uh, uh, the release of chronic pressure overload. Yes, absolutely. So it's a, a new window where we can get some insights into physiology that we haven't really had the opportunity exactly. to look at before. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and that is one of the beauties of, of modern techniques, perhaps, that we overlook in, in their challenges they also present us with these opportunities. Exactly. So c could you just give us a little bit about the uh, setup of the study, how you went about looking at the ventricle's response to uh, TAVI? So what we did in this particular study is that we, we used just transfemoral studies, again, because we wanted to try and um, make the amount of tissue damage and the amount of inflammatory response fairly uniform. We excluded our transapical population, and we've studied them in, in a number of other separate studies. But we used right. transfemoral patients only. And we characterized their 
uh, hemodynamic response to TAVI by performing transthoracic echoes uh, both before the procedure, just in the hours leading up to the procedure, six hours after implantation and at 24 hours after TAVI as well. And we, we characterize these changes also by measuring biomarkers of uh, myocardial injury uh, and other uh, neurohormonal um, markers of activation so that we could try and not answer what we found on the echo, but perhaps stimulate some hypotheses as to what we were observing in our, in our echo studies. And uh, the number of the patients in the study was, was relatively uh, low, I know, but we are obviously in stages with, with TAVI and uh, getting high numbers is, is something perhaps for the, the future. But yeah. uh, what were your initial echo findings in the, in the first instance? Well, what we found was that, you know, a little bit surprising that there was in fact a deterioration in uh, contractile function uh, immediately post-valve deployment. So we found that both systolic and diastolic function uh, as measured by a number of uh, echo indices such as DPDT max and diastolic volume uh, calibrated DPDT max and uh, a myocardial performance index. Um, at six hours, both systolic and diastolic function diminished. So, so although cardiac output increased because we measured cardiac output um, with, with a, a, um, a an output flow catheter, um, the contractility appeared to go down, um, but at 24 hours it recovered. So there was a dip in contractile uh, function of the ventricle, but an overall improvement in cardiac output because of the release of um, afterload. So we're removing the stenotic valve, so overall cardiac output was greater. But actually, if we looked closer, the myocardium wasn't working quite as well at six hours, and then it recovered. That, that in itself is a fascinating finding, I have to say. And you, am I correct in saying you also noticed the tachycardia, which may in part account for the increased cardiac output? Well, that's right, and we, we, we didn't we, we didn't note much change in in heart rate or or blood pressure. But the other thing that that we were aware of is that some of these changes are di difficult. I mean, as you know, contractility of the myocardium is a very hard thing to measure. And ECHO goes some way to doing it. It was the best that we could do. But we're keen to look in more detail at contractility. One of the, one of the issues that we were mindful of looking at these ECHO indices is the change in loading. Because, of course, if you change loading during the uh, TAVI procedure or afterwards by, say, lowering the blood pressure or giving inotropes, then, then these ECHO indices are quite sensitive to loading. So to get a load-independent marker of of myocardial contractility is, is actually quite hard. I think the only gold standard way of doing it is to, to measure con with a conductance catheter pressure volume loops and look at end systolic pressure volume relations. But but we felt that, that actually these were the best that we could do non-invasively. Um, but we were mindful of the fact that they would be altered by low or high blood pressure or, or Low or, or high heart rate immediately post TAVI, and there wasn't a massive change in the in the, the hemodynamics. And where there were patients where there was a big big change, they, we weren't we didn't include them in the study. So we tried to make the hemodynamics as standard as we as we as standardized as we could.
Okay, well, that's very, very clear. So, um, well, I guess my, my next question has to be uh, something that you go into in the discussion in a, in a little bit of detail, but maybe if we could just expand that. Uh, you say, why does this happen? And, uh, of course, pacing of the ventricle during TAVI is an essential part of the procedure to lower the cardiac output as you're positioning the valve accurately. Uh, yeah. Do you think that, that is the most likely reason for this transient lowering of ventricular function, or do you think there are other factors too? And one thing I'm particularly interested in is you do uh, specify that some of your group had coronary artery disease, in fact, 66%, but uh, you didn't really feel that was a factor in this process. Is that fair to say? I think it is. I think that I don't think coronary disease was responsible for this. Um, clearly, as you as you say, to, in order to get a really clean answer to this, you'd have to look at more patients, and they would have to be cleaned up by excluding the coronary disease. So, I mean, I, you know, the perfect study would be 200 patients with with normal coronaries and pure severe aortic stenosis. And again, that's just a difficult study to do. But um, I, I don't think coronary disease was an issue. But I think myocardial ischemia was probably an issue. So so one of the questions that some of the reviewers came back to us, were, 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 I think they were good questions, is look, what happened to your coronary disease patients? Were they any different from your patients with unobstructed coronaries? And um, we didn't really feel we had enough uh, numbers to answer that question, but we did look, we co-segregated the patients with coronary disease and those without, and there was no difference in the way that they behaved uh, for okay. what it's worth in the low numbers. But I think that myocardial ischemia is certainly an issue. Now, the, the question that I'm not sure about is what exactly is causing that ischemia? And of course, rapid pacing, you have to be suspicious that rapid pacing yeah. Is, yeah. is relevant because you get epicardial or, or, or sorry, subendocardial um, ischemia with rapid pacing. And it would be over this sort of time timeline that you might expect a stunned myocardium to to, to dip down and, and improve, you know, the six-hour echo showing a dip and then the 24-hour echo showing an improvement. So stunning subendocardial ischemia with pacing would be where my, my, uh, my thoughts were. Yes, absolutely. And particularly one of the things you, you outlined very nicely in the discussion is that that phenomenon of the uh, pacing causing ischemia is actually a bigger problem in the hypertrophied ventricles that we tend to see in the aortic yeah. stenosis. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Well, I, I guess the most uh, practical question we have to ask is how has uh, this influenced your thought on your TAVI patients who, uh, as you rightly point out, traditionally we as cardiologists have not been used to managing in the, in the 24 hours, 40 hours after the aortic valve uh, gradient is released. Um, are you uh, changing any protocols or do you do anything differently now as a result of having done this work? Well, we do because what we noticed was that patients in the first 24 hours quite often display signs of heart failure and you you go on you see them on the ward round on ITU or coronary care unit and you say well they haven't got heart failure because we you've, we've replaced their valve and um, you know they've got a good LV uh, normal coronaries they don't have heart failure so you don't it doesn't enter your mind and and with the knowledge that they have a dip in contractile function we are actually much more alive to the fact that if they get breathless at six to ten hours or if they develop peripheral edema, which an awful lot of them do within the first 24-48 hours, we will then treat that with, with um, traditional heart failure medicines. We will certainly, I certainly diurese the patients a little bit uh, more aggressively in the first 24-48 hours because it's amazing how many of them develop um, peripheral edema. Um, and also, if, if they were in trouble and you, you patients were requiring 
uh, uh, respiratory support in the first 24 hours, then you would treat them with inotropes in order to allow their stunned myocardium to pick up. So I personally would choose an inotrope that wasn't a, a, a hugely dilating inotrope because of the systemic response that you get as well. But, uh, but certainly it has made us much more alive to the fact that things that happen between 6 and 24 hours could be due to this transient dip in contractile function and you need to treat them as if they've got transient heart failure, much the same way as you might treat someone who's had an infarct and a primary angioplasty. And you, you would think, well, the ventricle's going to dip down in the first short while, but hopefully it'll pick up because I've opened the coronary artery quickly. It's a similar sort of analogy. You can say, well, knowing that they'll, they're likely to have a bit of contractile dysfunction within that 24 hours just allows you to tailor their therapy on the immediate recovery in the immediate recovery phase i think a little bit more um more specifically with this information yes i think that's a, a really nice uh, take-home message and a, and a good way to think of it um phil while i have you on the line just finally i have to ask you about the bigger picture of, of TAVI overall. Yeah, sure. um, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, obviously we know the number of procedures really is beginning to take off now. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think it's fair to say also in the literature recently there's been a little bit of a, a backlash with um, some authors pointing out that we need to maybe be a bit more careful about our selection process and there's obviously still a lot we have to learn about TAVI as, as your paper points out. I mean, where do you see the next five to ten years uh, going in terms of do you think the TAVI procedure as, will stand as it is or will the technique change a lot and do you think the numbers will continue to increase? Well I certainly think the numbers will continue to increase. I personally think that two things will happen. I think first of all you're absolutely right. We have backed off the super high risk patients and I think this concept of futile intervention or futile TAVI uh, is, is a very well made point and, and, and uh, we're now where I, w I was previously being asked to give talks on on TAVI and the technique and what you do. I'm now more often being given talks on case selection and futile TAVI. What we've found is that patients that are extremely high risk and have a large burden of comorbidity don't do so well in the longer term. And the reason is that the comorbidity gets them um, before the valve does. And if you look at their behavior and survival over one year, you find that there is an attrition. And I'm talking about people with logistic uroscores of over 40, 45, 50. There was, a sort of, there was a sort of challenge to try and get these patients through the procedure. And quite often we did get them through the procedure and even got them home. But what the data is starting to tell us, the longer term data, is that actually, if you look at their survival over a year, when they have advanced respiratory disease and they have advanced renal disease and so on, um, you find that this comorbidity creates a huge attrition. And actually what you've done with the valve, you may have, you may have improved their symptoms transiently, but you have not improved their survival. So what we're seeing I, and is we're seeing a slight decrease in the, in the average Euroscore of all patients across most world registries. And I think that decrease, the, the average Euroscore, is because people are just backing off the super high risk patients. So I think that's the first thing. We're getting case selection a bit better. We're recognizing our limitations. But the other thing, of course, that will happen is technology will take us through. And technology is, 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 is overwhelming in, in this, the TAVI arena. We're going to be using smaller delivery sheaths than the 14 French Edward sheaths going to become available fairly soon. And when you're down to 14 French, you're really down to pretty much a, 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 a cath lab 
not-so-special procedure. And the other thing is that the actual valve prostheses we're going to be putting in are going to be easier to put in. They're going to be repositionable, um, retrievable. Um, and I think it will be a better procedure with decreased aortic regurgitation rates and decreased stroke rates and improved access. And those are the three big those are the three big things with TAVI, the access, the aortic regurgitation, and stroke. And I think they're all being addressed by industry now. So it's certainly going to be very, very exciting to watch this technique. But, but it's, a, it's a fabulous technique, and I, and I think it's you know, very much here to stay as a mainstay of treatment. And uh, we've just got to be careful that we do everything within a, within a research-type framework so that we understand what we're doing. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, I guess TAVI is now 10 years old, but I think, as you've outlined very nicely there, I mean, the next 10 years are perhaps going to be even more exciting uh, than the first. Yeah. Well, well, Phil, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate oh, the insights of somebody with so much experience in the technique. And uh, we thank you again for submitting your paper. Uh, thank That's you very cool. much for joining us for this edition of the Heart Podcast. And uh, we hope to join you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.